Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm Guru Nishan and I'm your host. I want to thank all the listeners for tuning into the podcast regularly and thank you all for your generous donations and your support to support uh, the ongoing creation and new stories coming out for the podcast. Like all episodes, I begin this podcast with the intentions for why I began, and I read them at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other support and therapy as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. 
Look in the show notes for more details. And you can also send a donation of support at my website, gurunishan.com. I want to say happy summer solstice, everybody. And summer solstice, for those of you that grew up in 3HO or became well acquainted with the 3HO lifestyle, you know that that was the major holiday, one of which our lives were devoted and designed around the summer solstice and the winter solstice. And so for those of us that might have left this lifestyle years ago, we still tend to hold a nostalgic story that may be attached to the mythology that we learned about summer solstice and specifically related to the solstice land used in Española um, called Ramdas Puri. And so I just want to acknowledge that on this day, for years and years and years, we would gather in the mountaintops um, and the mountaintop of the mountains in New Mexico. And along with this story came a mythology that still very much is used and um, narrated through the teacher training mysticism of today. COVID obviously put a stop to in-person gatherings. And I think that's one of the main reasons that there hasn't been a a collective revisit um, onto the solstice land. But I do know that there was a group of people that did a solstice type celebration within their own domain of of yoga um, for this summer season. But the overall 3HO domain did their work online. They didn't actually gather at the summer solstice land. That was specifically under um, the Raj Festival group. So I just wanted to highlight that. And for anybody listening, today's episode is gonna get into the real story of how we acquired, and I say we loosely, meaning 3HO as an organization, YB specifically, acquired the land in Española, New Mexico. Um, What we, many of us hold as nostalgia of both good times and not so good times. Um, which we get to share today. So our episode or our guest today is actually Guru Gunkar. Simply, she goes by Gigi today. She joined 3HO in 1972 at Mendocino Summer Solstice. She became devoted to the practice of yoga, cleansing and detoxing from her young adult years during the times of sex, drugs and rock and roll moving away from the negative lifestyle while rapidly moving toward her newfound faith and conscious family led by Yogi Bhajan. For the next 12 years, she immersed herself in the Sikh tradition of sacred music, Kirtan, and her faith as a sacred, uh, as her, and her faith as a sacred devotion. She was arranged to be married in 1974 and soon after 1976, YB influenced her to relinquish her family inheritance, which was eventually used to purchase the summer solstice land known in 3HO as Ramdas Puri in Española, New Mexico. In 1979, Yogi Bhajan turned on Gigi, vowing to destroy her and eventually influenced her to give up her children to her ex-husband. Yet she carried on as a devotee until December, 1983, when she finally left, but remained devoted to the Sikh faith. In 2020, 
It was an uproar which opened the old wounds and forced her into the swirl of all that went left unexamined. Today, Gigi finds herself struggling to even keep a roof over her head, yet in spite of all this trauma and loss, she knows she's on the path to healing the deep emotional wounds she has suffered. She's in contact with her children, who've also shared stories with her of their abuse during the years after she was forced to leave them behind. She's grateful for all spiritual support and prayers in the spirit of brotherly and sisterly love. I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for being here. <laughs> I'm proclaimed. <laughs> I was beautiful. I didn't think I would cry. <laughs> it's beautiful that you're here and you're still with us. So thank you. Thank you to all that, all the forces that be that I survived all that, right? <laughs> yes. Um, I want to just preface uh, of saying I didn't know um, your story before 2020. I read your write-up in, in the Facebook group, um, the Beyond the Cage at the time in 2020, when all of this started to flurry through um, the 3HO community. And I, I was astounded to hear your story, not surprised in that I knew that he was an extractor of resources for a long time. Um, but I want to really preface the mystical story of what many of us know as like the, you know, that YB had had a dream and the Hopi, or sorry, that the Hopi had had, had, had a vision that the white the people in white would come. And so they gave us the land. And, and I'm saying this because it's really important that we speak the mythology out loud and not just kind of brush it over now that we quote, know the reality, so that those that are hearing the mythology can have the chance to have their veil broken. So what did you what do you remember in terms of what was told about where the land came from? And we're going to get to your story of how you ended up giving your money, but I'm, I'm curious if you remember that story being propagated and what else you remember. No, <laughs> there was no story. <laughs> I lived in New Mexico. My husband and I lived in New Mexico. And one day he called us over to the ranch and he had, uh, it was sitting in the living room and he had a coffee table and there was a map on the table. And he said to me, we've already gone to see uh, some land in Colorado. We all went to see that land together. And now he said, we are looking at this land in New Mexico. And he looks at the map and he shows me where it is. And he says, which way shall we go? you know, uh, point east to Colorado or the other direction to Ramdas Puri. And I don't know why I just pointed to Ramdas Puri and that was it. The decision was made right then and there. He told me that the land cost $600,000. And so my donation was $800,000. So um, I don't know what he did with the rest, but 600 went to the purchase of Guru Ramdas Puri. So you're speaking of the lands in, in the uh, Cruces Mountains, right? Since, um, and it's not traditionally Hopi land, from my understanding. I know that there's some um, work around the real the reclamation of, of who's 
territory and land this really is in terms of rematriation um, efforts. And I'm hoping to get more awareness to be able to bring to the podcast on that. But I want to just say that what you're talking about with the map, you're saying that he was, it was like Colorado land or New Mexico land, and you just pointed to here, and that's how that site was found. It's like, Dor- you know, the scarecrow and Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, which way do we go? <laughs> it was like that. Okay, and this is before you had given up your inheritance, or it was at that time, like you knew you were giving it for after. that project? No, after I had given it with no thought of anything in the future, this came later. I was so this map, in- the map story came after your, you had donated money. Yes. Yeah. So you had given up your money and then he called you in and said, we're, you know, this is, but that was after the inheritance money was given in. Yes. Got it. Okay. Well, we're going to get to the details here of Gigi's story, but I just want to say out loud that there is a mythology that runs thick. And I'm curious what yours mythology is as a yoga student that came and took, uh, yoga classes and then took teacher training and then ended up at solstice. I know that new students when I was teaching Kundalini yoga would immediately be solicited to end up at solstice. And that was a real turning point to where people would have a desire to change their name or, you know, follow the Sikhi faith or, and I want to point that out because it's at this gathering, it's at these monumental spaces that, um, a lot of our historical nostalgia lives because it's where there was community connection and profound moments of transformation while infused with a mythology that is not rooted in truth. And it can add to the complexity of having our bubbles uh, broken. So Gigi was the pointer of what land to get. It wasn't the vision of the Hopi and it wasn't even Hopi land. Um, (laughs) And a lot more uh, mythology to come from that, the real stories, um, which ties right into, you know, colonialism and, and, uh, and land stealing of the native peoples and the, and the indigenous people that originally had the land. And we're just a part of adding to that appropriation as a collective. So Gigi, I wanna say, when I saw you writing and being a part of the group back in 2020, I was astounded and I was moved and I was grateful you were writing and it was obvious how traumatic it was for you. And so to feel you two years later here and with real clarity of thought around you and your process and your willingness to share your story, I just want to say I'm extremely, extremely grateful and and in a weird way proud to say I'm I'm happy you're here to share with us um, your experience. Me too. <laughs> Still kicking, <laughs> alive and kicking. <laughs> Maybe a little more slowly now. Because <laughs> today you're 71, right? In this, in your 73. I just you're 73. Okay. Yeah. Well, ha- happy recent birthday. 73 years old today, and I would love you to take us back. Take us back to um, when it all began. 1972, Mendocino summer solstice. Um, t- or wherever you want to start. You might want to start somewhere else. So start wherever you'd like to. I was living in uh, Westwood near UCLA and with uh, some girlfriends in an apartment. And one day, one of my roommates brought this hippie guy home. And I I had been drinking, smoking, dropping this and that for quite a while. And I didn't feel very well. So I mentioned to the hippie guy that I wasn't well. And he knew some yoga. 
And he said, I'll teach you some yoga, but you have to promise that you won't do any more drugs or drink any more alcohol. So I promised and I did the yoga and I felt better. And he said, you might be interested in Sunday night Kirtan at Guru Ram Das Ashram in Los Angeles. So I started going. So, and I did uh, Kundalini yoga classes at UCLA in the evening. And then when it was time for solstice, I was invited to tag along. I think they uh, rented a bus and we all went together in the bus from LA to Mendocino. And I didn't know anyone. I, I just, just went, you know, <laughs> there was no personal connection with anyone. I didn't even have a tent. I slept on a, a felled pine tree with the branches over me for shelter. And, uh, it was just really getting down and raw, you know? And um, I think what really touched me more than anything else is when I heard Vikram Singh reciting Gurbani Kirtan, I felt like I had, I already knew it, though I'd never heard it in this life. And seeds were planted there. And it's interesting because sure, there were seeds of all the yogi stuff and all the tantric and Yogi Bhajan, but the one that really hit the spot was Gurbani Kirtan. So that was the beginning of that little uh, spiritual love affair that I've carried on for 50 years. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, um, the result of that was really the first time in my life feeling like I belonged anywhere. And, and, uh, um, I have no way to explain that, but I think it was what I was hungry for is to feel belonging and accepted. And, um, you know, in our very impersonal way at that time, without knowing each other, I was accepted. And uh, so that was the beginning of, of uh, the next 12 years, you know, and in one or another ashram or living situation or East Coast or West Coast. Or I've been all over the world with this thing. <laughs> and uh, so that was the beginning. So describe to us the, the feeling of um, being, being you mentioned to me, being at the, the, that first solstice and the, the sense of belonging. Um, it was that that sense of like loving and care, like feeling like, wow, I kind of, I found it, this innocence. And can you kind of like give us a sense of that? And I've heard this from my mom. I've heard this from other first gen that are are trying to give us a snapshot of the innocence around what really were those early kind of, I want to say trappings, but they weren't, they were just kind of in this innocent uh, play. Okay. I have to go back to before uh, 3HO, I was on the campus at UCLA and uh, 67 to 69, and it was on fire with protest and activism and this and that demonstration. And that was my education more than anything scholastic. Scholastic. I just picked up on all of this. I just sucked it up like a sponge. And most of all was the whole hippie thing of, you know, love-ins. We had a lot of love-ins and and uh, that feeling of uh, being connected that was with me, the hunger for that before I ever met anyone in 3HO or, or Kundalini Yoga. So when I came to the solstice, that was here inside of me and it, and it got fed. 
you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I brought that with me. It got fed. So, of course, I stayed because that was an essence that was precious to me. You know, they, they well, I think at UCLA, what I experienced without knowing it was the birth of the awareness of uh, the collective and uh, caring for our fellow humans. This was the very beginning for me. Otherwise, I grew up in a Trump-like household, very sheltered. And so this was the polar opposite of all that. Yeah, I wanted to get a snapshot into your childhood. So do you come from like generational wealth or like what was a snapshot in your family? What was um, the Trump-like household? I mean, you say that now in reference, but say for that time frame, it sounds like your time on campus gave you a snapshot into worlds you had never even known existed. Like whether exactly. it was like black liberation or whether it was, you know, veterans or whether Women. all of those things, right? Women's yeah. rights, all these, but- Give us a snapshot into your your childhood um, or your upbringing that you were coming and how did you end up on the UCLA campus? Well, they're very uh, the family generations back were very uh, Republican <laughs> and uh, very straight laced. Um, also, all alcoholic generations back, um, but you know uh, the kind of squares. You know, <laughs> and uh, and I was sheltered. I was the only girl and the oldest, and uh, I was sheltered, so I didn't really have much awareness of the world outside. You know, other than this little bubble that I lived in. And when I got to UCLA, my family moved up to Northern California, so I was left here all on my own to fend for myself. I had people looking out for me, but you know. I could do whatever I wanted, and I did, and uh, and so it was a breakout, you know, and it was uh, enlightening and illuminating. So I kind of feel like that's when my life began, <laughs> you know? and uh, all that money came from those straight-laced people. So. I guess we have to thank them in some way. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to that in the part of the story. So, but I just really wanted to preference preface like how you ended up here and the juxtaposition, right, from the culture you had come from to this incubation period of like massive awareness to then landing into three HO and the um, you know the understanding for those of us listening, the understanding of the volatile times of the sixties and the voice and the liberation movements that were happening in different directions and how, you know, the early 3HOers came out of that spawn, right? Um, they, yeah. they were running from other things that, that were their, that were, there were family, their family's values and they yeah. thought they had found something different. They thought yeah. they had found consciousness and awareness, right? So this is like right on the times of this liberation movement and it moves right into this self-righteous identity that becomes the 3HO white-wearing, um, you know, Western Sikhi uh, yeah. lifestyle cult. So thank you for that. So now what? You'd come, go to Solstice and? Oh, uh. Uh, well, I settled uh, in in uh, L.A. close to the ashram. I lived in a few different places, but then I was in. So uh, I found I, I was not 
comfortable living in an ashram. It was a bit too strict for me. So I, I ended up living with a few different, in a few different apartments with other people and, and we could be more free in our timing. It wasn't so rigid. I wasn't ready for a strict discipline at that point. So, uh, and I'm still not. <laughs> but, but I, I am probably more disciplined than most people I know, but I don't like, and I never have liked having discipline imposed on me. It has to be... Uh, voluntary so um i was you know juggling with that and trying to figure it out and still you know going to the yoga and the sunday night thing and seeing bhajan i don't call him yogi whenever he made himself available and um, then we opened the, the golden temple restaurant some people came out from dc and we did um, all that together got it going and i gave up my job so Whatever money came in was just a little bit of tips. I don't know how I survived that time. But I did live in an ashram at that point. And so we had everything we needed to take care of ourselves. And it was during that time that I met my soon-to-be husband. So um, that kind of takes us up to that. Nothing monumental until he came along. And then so, did you two meet or were you set up or how did that happen? And what, what year is this? Uh, 1973. Uh, the restaurant was up and running and he was working there um, and I thought he was awfully cute so I mentioned to you know we're kind of sick of being celibate all of us and so if we met somebody who looked interesting why not speak up right so I spoke up to Budgen and he uh, spoke to the guy and uh, and he arranged it and the marriage happened so and for is. the and for all those listening, it's because you know the the lifestyle that was propagated was the celibate lifestyle until you got married. And so this was early, you know, you'll hear in more and more people's stories in the early days, you know, arranged to be married. Couples were just kind of put together, you know, random choices like, oh, I think I want to marry yeah. that person because it was set up as the right path. Like the right yeah. path is get married. And so you just did it and you'll again you hear it in that as a theme in different people well stories. in the Sikh uh in the Sikh faith um marriage is something they all do it's part of the religion uh uh that part of the spiritual path is to have a family the life of a householder so I'm sure Bhajan was just he wanted to bake a Sikh so that was part of the Sikh is part of the Sikh uh way according to even the scripture so um yeah so uh, yeah, what yeah. i want to pause with that is that there's the conflation of how traditional Sikhi values that are very much rooted in in faith and long tradition got conflated with this new identity called 3ho Sikh dharma of the western hemisphere identity and the reason i'm prefacing or presencing the infusion of that is as the mythology or the narrative goes, we learned that Kundalini yoga is a householder's yoga. Oh, wow. How that got conflated. <laughs> See how what Gigi just said is that in the Sikhi faith and in, in traditional value, right? It's a house, your householder. So it's a part of the deeply rooted Sikhi faith to get married and have a family. And so what YB was doing is he conflated things that were real and truthful in certain areas and then into other places where 
it's not founded as truth. And, and it became truth because it became our living truth and our identity. See, uh, in, in Sikhi, uh, they're just, it's so wise that people need to have sex with someone. They need closeness. They need a family to uh, look out for each other. It's all very practical and natural for humans to want these things. That's why it's a part of the the religion and the spirituality. But, but it's not part of the religion or the spirituality of, of the faith, may I ask, to say not have sex with your partner. No. <laughs> right. So that, to have sex once a month, any... that wasn't true. Right. No, no, that's no, no, just no, made no. up. Right. That's not a part of the faith. Right. So I'm, I'm no. saying these things out loud because sometimes we don't even know what we've been taught to believe because we've just been embedded with belief systems around sex and marriage and faith and love and all these things. And they're infused. So I, I caught that, yeah. you, you know, I had never heard somebody speak to the Sikhi faith as the householder yoga, because my uh, the householder faith, I learned this householder concept in relation to Kundalini yoga. And so I found this so interesting <laughs> that it's enmeshed together. Ask me anything about the Sikhi. <laughs> I will. And I'm excited about that. We're going to get to this part of your story because of your devotion to it. And it's a, such a crucial thing. I remember from 2020 that you're in a different point of today. So I want to highlight that as we get to it, but bring us back. So you're at the golden temple. You meet your, you suggest, Hey, that he, he looks cute. You're obviously all hot to trot. You're in your twenties. And you know, that in order to get, 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 get to the goods, you need to get married. So you're like, suggest him YB sets it up. And then, and then, it, then you get married. So you're excited. You're, you're happy to marry this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was good. It was good until he started in, in interfering. And one of the, my main lessons. Yes. Okay, go he ahead. had to get his hands in from the very beginning. One of my most important life lessons is if you love someone, don't let a third person come between you. Never, never, never. Because that's what happened in my marriage. I think I had too much faith in Bhajan and I should have had more faith in my husband. And in, ultimately he felt betrayed as a husband would. You know, and my innocence, Bhajan's... Uh, uh, exploitation and and uh, my husband's heartbreak didn't was it what a set up to fail so so tell is. us that what happened so your marriage was good you're enjoying it and then what was what was the sequencing give us a sense of the time period that you were in in well uh well you know we were early married and didn't know each other uh battling it out a lot, <laughs> trying to find a way to make it work uh, as personalities. Um, so uh, when it got to be a bit too intense, Bhajan separated us. And uh, he brought me out to the estate from Washington, D.C. And uh, I spent some time with BBG, his wife, and got to know her. I had a very nice time with her. And uh, after that, we went to uh, summer solstice. And after that, I guess it was 1975, I went back to Washington, D.C. and got pregnant with my daughter. And uh, this is interesting because people say Bhajan was psychic or not psychic. But at the end of um, the women's camp, 1975, 
he said, it's time for you to go home. You're going to get pregnant and have a beautiful daughter. And I did. <laughs> Maybe it's a coincidence who knows. Uh, now, so, tell me, uh, you were in L.A., and then when you got married, did you end up living in D.C.? Actually, we, I, we, uh, yeah, uh, when I got married, we were in L.A. My husband hated L.A., so we drove across country and, and stayed in the ashram in D.C. Okay. We weren't getting along, so Budden brought me out to California again, and then after that. And when you were in D.C.? Did you, did, were you at the Golden Temple restaurant in DC under, yeah, I worked there under also. Larry and, um, so Larry and, and, uh, Sir Peter. Oh, Peter. Yeah. Okay. Both of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then you get flown out to the estate, you have to come out to the estate to spend time with, with Budgeon. And then, um, and then he says, go home, you're going to get pregnant. So then you go home, you, you end up going to DC, you have your fa- you're in the ashram or you guys have a place nearby and, and have kids. Yeah, of your daughter. We had my daughter, and uh, let's see. Uh, after that, it was uh, go forward to. Uh, do you want to name who your kids of, are, or do you want to keep that to yourself? Well, her name was Siri Siri Ratankar. Okay. She calls herself Siri now. She still okay. likes that part of her name, and uh, so um, after she was born, a uh, few months, uh, about ten min- months after. Bajan wanted to send me to India with BBG. So um, I went, I weaned my daughter and went to India in uh, spring of 1977. And I spent hours and hours in the Golden Temple recording Keaton. <laughs> Pause though, this is spring of ni- it's 1977, you said. But in 1976 is when you gave up your money. So can you take us back before you got sent to India? Give us a sense of the circumstance of the, the circumstances that led us. So you're in DC that led to you receiving money and then giving it up. Like, give us a sense of that. Okay. So uh, uh, Bajan sent me home to Washington, DC. I got pregnant. That was in 75. In spring of 76, my daughter was born. A few months later, I inherited the money. My mother called me at midnight and she says, guess what? You're a millionaire. It's like, I mean, I came from a middle-class family, hardworking parents, and uh, it was a pretty big shock. So for a while, I didn't tell anybody. Um, But, you know, it's hard to keep a secret like that. So I called Bajin and I told him that I had inherited all this money. And then he started in on me, calling at odd times in the middle of the night or when he knew that my husband was away and started working on um, influencing me to turn it over to him. Pause. You're saying he would call you at odd times of the night. Where was your husband at this time? Oh, you might, he'd like call me in the middle of the night when we were sleeping and I'd get the phone or he'd pass the phone to me or he would call me when, or he would call me when my husband was work and he, but knew that my husband was at work, not with me. So he could talk to me freely and uh, started working on uh, influencing me to turn it over to him. Now at this time. Rather than trusting one? 
trusting my mother who also wanted to get it from me. <laughs> so, so you're rather kind of in this. Also, yeah, I want to hear more. Rather, Keep going. Go ahead. Rather also than trusting my husband. So all of a sudden he's turned me against all the key people in my life except him. So in, this is in phone. So you call that one night kind of letting him know what happened because you, you just need to share and you don't know who to trust. So you don't tell your husband yet. You end up calling YB and then he, knows. he you said your husband knew. Yeah. Okay. So your husband yeah. did know and you, um, you start you're saying he starts in on you. So what you mean by that is a series of flooded calls over periods of time where influence, what we call undue influence began to happen where um, he's hearing the narrators of like where you trust, where you can't trust, turn you against your husband and your mom. But I'm guessing at the time you didn't necessarily notice that. No, uh, much later, someone used the word coercion, but I had never thought of it at the time. So what did it feel like at the time? That's what I mean. So what did it feel like at the time? You called him because you didn't know who to trust. Like you talked to your husband though. And then you just felt like you needed direction on what to do with the money. Like what were you looking for? I felt that it was too overwhelming for me to manage because I had never had money in my life. Only whatever I'd earned or you know, allowance from the parents. Um, I did not even want to deal with it, to be honest. In a way, it feels like he was relieving me of the burden of having to manage this thing, which was way bigger than me. So, um, and there was another side of it. Going back to what I said, um, my feeling before of, having that camaraderie and the feeling of acceptance and belonging was so deep in me. And I felt so grateful for this thing that we had that I wanted to turn it over on some level out of gratitude. So these are my pure feelings and he may have, I mean, surely he manipulated them, but you know, I've learned in almost every situation that comes up in our lives that it's a 50-50 proposition. And I always have to take responsibility for myself, for my part. Well, I'm going to pause you there and just say, you know, thank you for um, examining the scope of it all and and allowing yourself to um, see your part. And the, the undue influence and the coercion that was actually taking place at that time I really want a more presence. The gratitude of being able to give kind of your offering to a larger mission that felt more right and kind of the double bind of that, that to call your spiritual teacher and ask for support here, there's no part of you that would think he's being manipulative, that you think he's there in your best interest because you're not paying attention to the things actually taking place. You're only in the story of the devoted one to serve. And so I, again, I want to just acknowledge that and say, it's not your fault. That is coercive. These are primal parts of ourselves and and your willingness to see all that right now, again, just really speaks to your, um, your, your process of healing. Uh, 
Okay, so he starts calling you. He ends up hearing, you know, so subtly turning you against your mom because you have this your own drama going on about why your mom's trying to take the money. Uh, and that's probably its own finan- uh, family cr- crazy. And so you also think he's protecting you from, from the dynamics of your family. Yeah. And the toxicity of money and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> It ain't coming. <laughs> yeah. Later, I, I came to learn that uh, his warning against my mother was actually accurate because my mother actually did try to have me kidnapped and deprogrammed at a later time. And my brother was even uh, involved in that. And Budgen actually hid me out in England for eight months so nobody could find me because nobody knew where I was. <laughs> is this 80s or is this in the late 70s? That was in uh, 1977. When I came back from India in 1977, I was pregnant with my son. I wasn't allowed to go home to New Mexico until eight months later. <laughs> okay so you got sent to he had you sent to india and you started playing kirtan and you're with bbg and like this was like a very rapturous time of your life no yeah yeah well all that kirtan and harimandir Saab, golden temple it was pure bliss you know and really if i have a great love in my life it's gurbani kirtan mm. yeah mm. i feel it. that was pretty much where it was born um but I'm speaking this because that that it was that happened that level of depth of devotion and next level connection to Kirtan and your time in India, and then the, the your family tra- uh, attempting to deprogram you, and what you called YB's warning against that. I want to pause on that so that listeners really understand the magnitude of what she's saying here. Um, in the seventies and early 80s, and I think a little further into the 80s, I'm learning now that there was a big wave of anti-cult rhetoric. Um, And so there was a bunch of, what I mean by the anti-cult rhetoric is that the rhetoric of cults was to inoculate their followers that there are people coming for you because your family is going to get you kidnapped. So there was rhetoric against people coming to pull people out of cults because cults were so rampant at this time throughout the U.S., there ended up being a big anti-cult movement. And so therefore a lot of cults infused into their rhetoric an anti-cult understanding so that devotees and followers like Gigi would see their parents as an enemy and not see this as an act of love from the family to try to help this person. And I'm saying all this because Dr. Stephen Stephen Hassan, who um, is a cult expert and he has several books on on deprogramming ourselves and the path of this, he speaks to this specifically and he speaks to this time period that that cults ended up getting very bolstered because the anti-cult movement got a lot of uh, mainstream rhetoric uh, linked to it that really prevented people from from like Gigi from having successful deprograms, essentially. They were violent and they were taken, you know, they were just done in ways that, and they were set up for failure from the beginning because the cults itself were training people um, to see it not as an act of love, but to see it as an act of violence from their family. 
So uh, uh, on the subject of deprogramming, mine actually began on another trip to India when Bhajan sent me to, uh, to actually provided the teacher for me. And he asked this great, great scholar to teach me Kirtan and um, Pot, the reading of Guru Granth Sahib. And uh, I did uh, spend much time with him as a devotee and he was fatherly and kind. And he was a great Gursik, nothing like Bhajan, the polar opposite of him. And I got to see from time with him what real Sikhs were like. And not only that, but here's where Bhajan and I broke. Mm. This uh, Gursik told, he and his friends told me what the true Gursik attitude is towards money, which is. If you have money to give, you're, it's proper to give 10%. It's not proper to give all of it or two-thirds. And, uh, and this is where, and it came to be known that this man was uh, instructing me in what is trusiki, and it was not what Bhajan was teaching us. And when I got home, this infuriated Bhajan, and that was when he vowed to destroy me. Did you say it to him or did, some, did he hear it from somebody else that you had learned some of this? Um, I don't remember. Uh, to be honest, any conversations I had with him from then on are uh, frozen. I, I have sure. a hard time uh, writing this out or going there because it's mm-hmm. the worst time in my whole life. Mm. Um, Thank you. That my teacher would turn on me like that. So um, Pause. So you started learning this from a true Guru Sikh in India and it, refl- it was kind of like a, you called it a deep program because it was starting to pierce your veil of influence because you had, because you, because why be it asked for two thirds of your inheritance, right? You received like 1.2 million or something. And then he asked for two thirds. So you ended up giving 800,000. And so to hear that the true relationship should have been give 10% of your inheritance and then a, a, a better coaching of what to do with your money that would be for your livelihood and for your household right. and your children. Right. But yeah. you suddenly realized, whoa, I, I'm not like you're experiencing real care and real guidance. And suddenly it was like a pierce in your veil that your spiritual teacher, the one you've devoted to, isn't doing some of these things. So you yeah, end up back perfect. in New Mexico and then suddenly you have some voice to this at some, in some way, obviously there's some vibrancy that's expressing itself. And I really respect that this might be frozen memory. So let's not spend too much time here, but distinctly around this time is when YB starts being um, adversary to you. Yes. And publicly, not, not only privately, whenever and wherever he could. (laughs) Tell us about that. Give us some examples. No. Okay. I and think probably the worst thing he ever did was he would get my husband on the phone and whisper things to him, which uh, um, broke any uh, connection my husband and I had. So uh, my husband started threatening me with weapons. He kept weapons in the house. And, uh, and, and at a certain point, uh, 1980 probably, uh, Pudgeon advised that I get the heck out of there. <laughs> so out of your we house were, with your husband. 
Yeah. So back up a little bit. Had he started um, uh, putting you two against each other as early as when he was coaching you on your money? Uh, No. Well, yeah. Come to think of it, because he didn't want me to listen to my husband either. You know, without the money. I mean, my husband and I were already going out to look for houses without really telling anybody. And uh, and I wasn't sure if I really wanted to move out of the ashram or anything. So um, that was, yeah, that, uh, not really heavily or overtly, but that is where I began. And, and then, then in 79, it got real heavy. Yeah, That's when it was pretty obvious, like he was starting to actually like put pit you and your husband against each other. Yeah, I could not, I'm a sensitive person. I could not be in the same room or in the car or anywhere with my husband without him belittling me in some way. He had a sarcastic sense of humor and uh, he would say things that just cut through my heart repeatedly, repeatedly. But that wasn't the case when you first started getting married. That just started, that was later. No, he was kind of funny and cute. You know, I thought he was clever (laughs) but uh he stopped being clever when he started turning it on me well when um when you decided to to uh submit your inheritance to the eight hundred thousand, was there a discussion between your you and your husband did you not end up buying a house because you gave that money away like what happened in the riff of your 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 loving relationship there Uh, well i guess it wasn't a whole lot more love but um we stuck together, but um, what happened was, let me see if I can pull it up. Um, I wish I could go back to what you said about three lines ago. Oh, no, it's okay. Uh, yeah, pause, take some time. It, like, there's no hurry. I was just thinking about um, what your husband's reaction was. Did he have a reaction when you gave the money to YB? Uh, I think... Or was he well, as devoted he was, and saw it as a devotional no, act no. too? That's what no, I'm trying to, I'm think, trying to get uh, a taste of it. He was never deep into all of this. He didn't take any of it seriously. None of it. Uh, I don't know why he was there really. <laughs> he didn't fit in at all. <laughs> he okay. wasn't into yoga. He wasn't into yogi. I think he knew yogi was a bit of a BSer. Uh, was he a practicing you know, Sikhi? Did he like Sikhi? No. <laughs> no, uh, he didn't go to sadhana. He didn't do yoga or nothing. I don't know what it was. He maybe wore a turban? Liked, yeah, but okay. maybe what I liked about him was he was a little bit of a rebel. And I have a little bit of a rebel in me, you know, so we kept that alive. And mine is very, uh, it's a slow burn where his could be a, you know, a volcano. <laughs> but okay. I think we liked that about each other because we both had fire. We both had, I had the Irish temper and he had the Puerto Rican Latino thing going and it worked. You know? Okay. We Thank you for really that. Hard and, we, and we made up really good. <laughs> nice one. Nice picture, Gigi. Um, so on that note in 1979, when he starts it sounds like YB would call your husband and talk to him about you and call you and talk to, and this is not, this is one of the patterns that we've seen um, as in the tapestry of, of how he controlled marriages. Um, so you're saying it really became much more intense and overtly attacking you 
in public as well as private spaces from 1979 yeah, forward. So I goaded my husband on a lot. And uh, this is interesting during one of those India trips, you know, the money had gone to Bhajan. And uh, just before that, we were looking for houses, right? We wanted a house. And then the money went to Bhajan. And uh, so while I was on one of those India trips, Bhajan got together with my husband and they picked out a home for me with my money, with no say for me whatsoever. I come back from those eight months in England to a home I never chose. And I did not like that place at all. <laughs> but there it is. It's like I had no power. I had been stripped of any power or individuality, strict, stripped of any power or individuality and in all of it. It was the husband and Pudgeon, and they were the dominators, and I was the victim. I was the submissive, you know. So there's that. Is that what you were feeling at the time? How did it? How did it? How, how did it, you experience it at that time when you came back from England? Squashed. <laughs> I felt squashed. Okay. What can you do? But you, you, with people that dominant, and you're squashed, you can't say anything. I was afraid if I if I spoke up, my husband would get violent, you know. So finally, when I had enough, that's when I called Budgeon and I said he's he's become dangerous to live with, and that's when Budgeon moved me out of there to LA. That was 1980, I think. 1980. Okay, so pause. We're paused on 1980. I want to go back from when you were in India, and then Budgeon flew you to your uh, to UK to hide out. Um, no, uh, well, I came back from India normally. Uh, you usually, if you're on Air India, you land in New York first and then you proceed on. So my husband met me in New York and he says, we can't go home. Your uh, mother's trying to program you. So the next day he put me on a plane to London. So, you know, I was pretty, pretty shattered because after India, you want to come home and sort of decompress, you know, in your own space instead of and, going to an ashram in, in London where I didn't know anybody and stay there. And, and that was uh, an Indian uh, ashram or that was the 3HO ashram? 3HO. It was 3HO in, in, uh, in UK. Okay. So um, your mom was at your house and she was there with, quote, depro cult deprogrammers? No, she lived in New Northern California and somehow she managed to uh, arrange this thing. Um, I don't know the mechanics of it at all. And I didn't even really believe that it was true until uh, last year I had contact with my niece, haven't uh, had any contact with her for probably 35 years. And she told me that her father, my brother, really was part of trying to deprogram me. So I only learned about the truth of it last year. Wow. <laughs> I never really believed it. You know, I would sneak out and go places. And, you know, nobody was following me. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, wow. And once again, I want everybody to really hear this is because of the amount of um, cults that really spawned from the 60s and 70s. And there was a lot of um, families that were trying to get a hold of their kids. And so the inside the cults themselves, they made sure that the devotees um, 
that that's that narrative was flipped around. So you thought your parents were doing something crazy and violent to you, as opposed to a loving act of trying to um, show you they care. So thank you for that. Um, okay. So you come back, you're up, they had purchased your house for you. You didn't even have any say so, and you feel crushed, but you're dealing with dominant men and a whole system that perpetuates this kind of submission. You're pregnant. Yeah, came back to uh, when, once I left England. Um, uh, actually, I'd been there eight months, and I said, if I didn't, I want my child to be born in the U.S. I insisted that it come home now, and uh, and so I came back, and within a few weeks or a month, my son was born, and uh, I have to say, very happily, he was born at home with no trauma whatsoever in three hours. For a woman, that is really major success. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, after that, uh, women's camp with the baby, that didn't last very long in the heat. And then I finally got to go home to my home, which was probably 10 months after I had actually been there. And, uh, and uh, um. Okay, so I think so we've let got me pause the you real quick. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask real quick, um, if you don't mind sharing, um, who who was running the UK ashram? Like who was who was holding that area when you were there? Um, believe it or not, I remember uh, their names were Prit Paul Singh and Carr. Okay, yeah. I'm always yeah. curious about the different. <laughs> it was a long stages. time ago. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because you were talking about this is around 1977-ish, you know, I think at the yeah. time. And then yeah, you'd come time. back. Okay, so um, 1980, he, he has you come out to LA. And this is because your husband's too violent, so he convinces you you should leave. Yeah, so uh, he also said to leave my daughter behind with her father. And uh, my son was too little, so he had to come with me. And that was the beginning of separating my children from me. Um, my daughter has never forgiven me for that, though, even though I've tried to tell her the story, she doesn't believe me. In her mind, I abandoned her, and uh, I don't know how I can make that up to her. <laughs> but um, anyhow, uh, the father started working on her and then later on my son to convince them that I had abandoned both of them. And at one point later on, he actually, we had a 50-50 uh, custody agreement in the divorce decree. And um, when I was up in Canada a little bit later, my husband actually took the kids with his new, new wife and moved them and everything down to Puerto Rico, very far away where I, they were out of touch. And I learned later that during the time they grew up there, he was extremely abusive to them um, because of the money that I had given away. He took it out on my children and brainwashed them to believe that I did not care about them. Mm. So, uh, you know, more than my own trauma and tragic story, the worst tragedy is the second generation of my story who uh, I don't know if there's any healing for them in this life. 
Hmm. Thank you for naming all of that. Um, and I want to just go back and revisit your daughter's feeling of abandonment that it can both be true, right? That she felt abandoned because your actions were abandoning and you're under undue influence, coerced and weren't actually in your own will. And her experience is hers and it's not her job to ever uh, understand yours. Um, and yet- no, they, children they, never do. But they're, <laughs> right? But they can both be true. And um, I thank you for yeah. saying it because- those of us born into this, born to parents who made choices that did leave us behind, um, that abandonment wound um, has to get healed in, in a different way. And you never get to change that place. Um, it's and yet- interesting that um, my father died when I was four. And my, uh, what do you call that? Uh, what is that? primal wound that everyone has what is abandonment that uh, the no. abandonment neglect no no there's a word for it but my main trigger is abandonment and it's interest because my father died when i was little and my mother couldn't cope so uh abandonment and rejection are my triggers and interesting that my children have inherited that how strange these things move through families and i want to just a, how, yes, it definitely moves through families, but also I want to just, the profundity of what you just said is that you were four when your father died, and yet the way you experienced that is abandonment trauma, of course, because you're four. So regardless of whether it was your father or the choice, any of that, it's not. So from the child's point of view, it's just the pure mm-hmm. wound, right? And mm-hmm. so whether the mom chooses to leave, has it had a spiritual teacher that told her whether the mom died, as a child, we're experiencing it as the trauma experience, as the response. And um, it's just, it's so important for all of us to really let that in to be like, um, you know, Gigi's story is hers. And as a mother, I'm hearing the, um, the rippling impact of realizing, wow, yeah, all these things happened to me, but the impact of what's been left on my children, it's, it's the same trauma passing down to the next generation. And that's not something that you wanted. And yet there it is. Yeah. (laughs) We had high hopes. (laughs) Yeah, this, my mom, I can really relate to based on a lot of the things my mom has shared with me over time. Um, Thank you. So where are we? What, where? Uh, We're out. Oh, I'm, I'm now in (laughs) LA, uh, 81. And Budgen has given me a job working in the uh, secretariat at the reception desk. So here's some good stuff here too. Um, we had a, a confidentiality agreement, so whatever we saw there could not be repeated. I could, took it kind of seriously, but also it's interesting that no one ever confided in me what was going on, and it was obvious to me there was a lot going on with every woman who worked in that, that building. I, his whole staff worked there and came in you know, at different times during the day and all kinds of states of trauma and abuse, and it was obvious. But I was so lost in my own, you know, 
depression that I could not really recognize or imagine what they were going through. Um, and I did not even know any of these things until 2020 in the Wacko group. I had no clue, you know. That's how secretive they were. So um, you saw the different women that were his like service secretaries, so to speak, as opposed to like you're the receptionist in the secretariat, but he has all these different women at different positions and posts, older, younger, that are like mm-hmm. taking care of him at night, morning, day. So you're seeing all those various women and you would see them in different states, but never once associate to say physical or sexual abuse taking place. I never thought of him that way. No sure. way. For one thing, he wasn't attractive to me <laughs> because I would never be attracted to anyone who's dominant like that, even though my husband was, but he became that way later. He wasn't like that in the beginning, but I would never be attracted or find a dominant man like that interesting at all. So uh, I guess you could say I was innocent. <laughs> Yeah, or or I'll say trained to not see what's in plain sight. And yeah, I like to I describe it a little bit more like that because um, that's a part of what I've learned is like the coercion process of, of training yeah. and undue influences. We're trained to see and then unsee. Like we're, we, that was in our, our thus, you yeah. know? And so we don't know we're yeah. getting indoctrinated, but we're taught to like, oh, Oh, and that's infused into, and a part of us all deprogramming now is not even realizing that some of the base belief systems that run us actually aren't ours. They're deeply embedded parts of the program that we can't see or or recognize yet. Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, so you're working at the secretariat. You're obviously noticing things, but you're not actually noticing. Nobody ever said anything to you. Of course, you signed a non-disclosure agreement, uh, but you didn't think twice about that. You just thought the information must be so special that you're going to see that that's why it's needed. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I, I was no so idea. much in survival mode. See, uh, once I got to work at the secretariat, I got a small salary, but it wasn't enough to pay rent and and to take care of my small son and feed us and clothe us. And so I had to get a second job working at the Golden Temple again. And, uh, and I was, Ron Beer was the, uh, Ron Beer, son of Fajin, was the manager there. And he was pretty abusive to me also. So between the two places and all that was going on and the depression that was constant, you know, I wasn't probably my most observant. They put me in a situation like that now and I'll go right away, you know. So you got years, so years of wisdom. Anymore. Yeah, you got years of yes. wisdom on you now. So you're just giving us a taste. This is early 80s. If you go back and listen to the episode with Moni Nile, you can hear about kind of the Golden Temple takeover where Rumbeer yeah. got stepped in to take over things. So that's the time period that Gigi's talking about right now. Uh, go ahead. I have to say money was a dear, dear brother. And he was always sweet to me. He's a good memory. <laughs> and, and Akasha too. <laughs> so Both. there's something positive. <laughs> okay, Both so gems. there's that. Then uh, a wonderful Gursik uh, named by Singh came to LA in the fall of 1983 with two other wonderful Ragi Jatas. 
And I followed them around every program, almost every night for a month and recorded them. And, uh, and then they went to Iran Sabai, an all night Gaitan with uh, Faya Jeevan Singh. And they told him my story of the history of Yogi Bhajan and me. And he was so shocked and so hurt. He said, come to Canada with us. And he gave me the money to buy a ticket. And so I, uh, in the night, in December 1983, I escaped from 3HO and left and went to my parents and from there up to Canada. And that's when I began my, uh, my uh, schooling in learning all about Punjabi Sikhs. <laughs> that continued from 84 until the present. Um, so that I know in 2020, that a lot of what you were expressing in the Facebook group and in your writings was just how much your time with the Guru Sikhs and the different communities you found that were strictly like rooted in Indian culture and the tradition of the Sikh faith um, was holding you and sustaining you. Um, and so give us a sense of um, that from 2020 till now and how that's uh, shifted a little bit for you. Yeah, uh, I have all along uh, had a similar budget experiences, uh, you know, one here, one there, not many, but um, for the you mean most with, part. You mean with different leaders, like leaders of places? Abusive. Okay, so abusive. you're talking about different people that were also abusive, but leaders of groups. Yes, uh, for the most part, the Sikh community everywhere was really kind to me, and it's part of their faith to be generous and and help the spiritual brothers and sisters, no matter what their color or culture is. For the most part, I'd say 90%, I've benefited from that a lot. Um, but those abusers who I met, up until even uh, during the WACO group in that summer, uh, up until that point, there were still people, males, who were narcissistic, dominant, abusive, cruel, who uh, would attack me verbally, brutally. And um, the last time it happened, I said to myself, no more, no more. And so I've retreated from my involvement with Punjabi Sikhs. Um, I still have, if you saw my Facebook page, I probably have 30 dear friends and there are more who are not on Facebook and, you know, whatever good relationships I've had, I've maintained them and we have brotherly, sisterly love. But since I don't feel safe anymore in their company, because there's always going to be somebody who puts me down because I'm white or because I'm a woman, because I'm not married. These are important things to them in their culture. A woman who's not married can often be scorned. And uh, because their culture, see, there's a huge difference between Punjabi culture and Sikhi. And that's where I have taken a detour, because why should I be Punjabi to be a Sikh? So, and to be a Sikh, I can do all alone in my, in the way that I live and, and love and love my guru and, you know, whatever I want to do. That's my spiritual path. The, Sikhi is supposed to lead a person to freedom, you know, not to be bound in the chains of some culture or some belief system. 
for so somebody's like, subjugation because they want so, to put, take their wrath and judgment out so on you. You said you gave me permission earlier to use the f bomb. So fuck that. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Enough. Enough. No more. <laughs> Well, I just, I, I love the capacity that I'm feeling inside of you as you are claiming and reclaiming aspects and parts of yourself. And, and more than that, that you start acknowledging uh, your own wounds and also the wounds that you've caused inadvertently or naively on, on, on your children. And to acknowledge that as a first generation in this community is, is really huge and not too far found, you know, enough, you know, there's a naivety that's still attached to it that just says, I didn't know. And it's like, okay, but that's just not enough. You have to take your 50%. Like I said earlier, whatever it is, 50% is mine. I'll, I'll own it and I'll take responsibility. However, it works itself out. Who knows? Because the other side of the coin is something I've only learned over the last two years and that is uh, the prime directive of Sikhi is something called hukam. And that means divine will. And that means that behind all of this, in some magical and mystical way, the divine will is working. And I don't understand it. Everyone I've spoken with doesn't understand it. But I would like to acknowledge that it's there. Um, I just heard a, a talk earlier today about how God is love and the will is love. And if these things which happen, like our story here today, he said those are not in the hukum. Those are not in the divine will because the divine will is always loving and it's always perfect. And he says, you're perfect. So I thought, wow. <laughs> I don't know when I heard him say that. I, uh, I got all buzzy. It's like somebody told me who I really am, you know, and what's really going on. And divine will is not for hate or evil or war or any of these things. It's for us to love each other. Yeah, thank you. And, and I want to um, just land what, what Gigi just spoke, because we can take the language she gave us and um, tie it to this idea that, you know, everything happens for a reason, the divine will. And while that can be true on one realm, it does not discount our ability, capacity, and responsibility to speak the name of abuse for what it is. So something can be abuse and we get to grow from it, but we don't have to uh, take responsibility for the fact that the abuse happened to us or to stay silent because, quote, it's divine will. There's a, there's a step that I've learned in the trauma healing process that allows us to have both. It allows us that when we actually are doing trauma healing, we don't bypass and go right to the divine will of something. We actually are willing to feel it and let the reality of the choices we made and didn't make dismember us, kind of rip us apart so that what sprouts from that deconstructed innocent seed is perhaps maybe a divine flower. What's that uh, Leonard Cohen says that the wound, the wound is the place where the light enters. 
<laughs> yeah, it's actually a roomy quote. So uh, Leonard oh. Cohen might have uh, sung it, but it is very true. It's that as we heal and we're able to put our attention and gaze on the things that actually happen versus the stories that we were taught around those things, it does make space to heal. And a trauma-informed way to say it is that there is a silver lining to our pain mm. and our trauma as we are willing to do the work, the inner work of reclaiming these parts of ourselves that got frozen in time, we get to become more and more discerning of predatory patterns, yes, of recognizing definitely. the narcissistic yes. traits, the dominance <laughs> you're talking about. These predatory patterns show up over and over and over again. As Gigi talked about, she left in 1983, but in many different circles of holy people, she found, wow, culture, faith, they have interesting amalgamations. And within that is plenty of predatory patterns. Doesn't even matter the faith. Doesn't even matter the culture. So it can happen in your, your children's local school. It can happen in your political organization. It can happen in the next spiritual place you find solace. So we have to build capacity to notice narcissism, to understand the language of it, the sound current of it, because the more you listen to it, the more you can recognize it, the more you can feel the resonance of the terror and memory it might bring up in your body. You don't recognize it as terror because your body has so many smushed experiences that it can't actually tell what it feels. But we get better, don't we, Gigi? We get better at noticing. Yeah, it. Every, every time it happens, uh, uh, I still have a reaction, but it's much, much less each time. And I'm hoping I'll get to the point where one day there's a narcissist and I'll just say, walk away, Gigi. <laughs> just walk away that's my mantra <laughs> so good and it's true that is actually true like we actually get better at noticing it like it's like a sound and you're like oh no get get out of here and we learn to trust the wisdom of us more and more than the training that we've been led to submit yeah. to that level of dominance and, and unconscious um i highly recommend listeners to listen to rachel bernstein's um podcast um talking about uh cults and um, recently, Sat Pavan was actually interviewed on it and just really good in terms of really highlighting the narcissistic traits and kind of other tendencies of undue influence um, and how we get better at being able to recognize it when it's all around us. Because to just say it's that group's fault, you can do that, but it sure isn't going to help you for the next round of what you're about to attract. <laughs> well, you know, running away from 3HO, where I lost all my beloved brothers and sisters. I had to start all over again. Maybe, uh, you know, and then I did it again with another group. And like, maybe it was a um, more caring way to exit or exit from your inside, not your outside. If you find a nice group of people, you know, maybe there's a better way than running away. I don't know. <laughs> well, the more I learn about cults and uh, Stephen Hassan's work and other cult-led um, understanding is the more we can see that the patterns of, of cult formation and cult indoctrination are actually very similar. It doesn't matter the faith we're given. It doesn't matter the mission we're given. It doesn't even matter the details that all of the manipulative patterns are very much like a checkbox. Like, oh, yeah check. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Check. Oh, oh, check. So the more we become familiar with it, the less and less we personalize it 
and then we can recognize it. So we can actually create safe spaces that promote togetherness without constantly being triggered by um, people's manipulative moves. So at this point, I'm kind of uh, being a little bit aloof with everybody. I think I need to be along with myself for a while (laughs) instead of looking out there, you know. That's well, where I'm at right now. I want to thank you for your honesty um, and the boundary that you set for yourself even a couple of years ago to exit the Facebook group and take care of yourself. And that let you on a journey that brought you to a newfound awareness of saying, why would I keep repeatedly putting in myself in a place that I'm berated for just being who I am, single, white, whatever, fill in the blank. And um, your profundity of what you just said, I'm just in a place that I need to be with myself it is such an okay place to be. And it's so beautiful that you're choosing you and um, letting yourself have this time to listen to the wisdom of you and not the undue influence of anybody's guidance, no matter how intent, well intended it is. You want to know something? Not many other people are very interesting to me anymore. <laughs> not after the that. journey you've been on. do you want to tell us about your short hair you had mentioned that oh yeah well there's two things uh number one i had a really bad case of of scalp psoriasis and nothing else worked so one of the recommendations is shave the shave it all off so uh it's been almost a year and i really like it it's so liberating (laughs) shave your head She's got a nice yeah. buzz cut. If you're listening to the podcast, she's got a nice buzz cut on, on I her head. I feel like a Buddhist, mon- Buddhist nun now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there's another side of that. It's only 50-50. The other side of it is, the I, I mentioned the last time that a Sikh, a narcissistic Sikh man abused me. And I said, enough. This was the other part of it. It's like, I'm done. <laughs> and this shows... I'm done. <laughs> I'm not wearing that bonnet. I'm not doing any of that anymore. I'm going to do my own internal thing. You know, I, I've taken plenty from Siki. If I could catch one or two points from it and, and really run with it, that would be enough for this lifetime. I would feel successful. It's so rich. It's so mm. beautiful. And it's so, so sad to me that all of this is turning people away, you know because and hating it you know that's so sad can you with all of your awareness of of the Sikhi faith can you give us a a a taste of what's real about it versus what we got as the western Sikh version if if anybody could honestly read the words of the scripture in English, a good translation, which is hard to find, you'd see that the words of the gurus are deeply intuitive and they don't speak to your mind. They speak to your heart and your soul. And one thing that's carried me through all of this is that when I first met Bhajan, I went to him and I asked for help. And the truest thing he ever said to me was, I can't help you go to your guru and ask guru for help. So this was in the early days, you know, 84, 85, somewhere in there. I started reading from Guru Granth Sahib in English. And uh, and it became 
every relationship I ever wanted. It was the mother I ne- mother who abandoned me because she couldn't cope. It was the father who died. It was all the comrades and brothers and sisters who I never really had. And uh, every relationship is embodied there if you make the connection with the Sikh Guru. Since I had no one else, I turned all of my tendency to attach to him or it (laughs) and away from humans. And I've been working on that ever since. And uh, this, according to the Sikh faith, this is the only thing that goes with you anyway when you leave this world, your connection with your higher power, whichever, whatever you want to call it. Or, you know, if you're a Christian, it's Christ or Buddhist, Buddha or whatever. Everybody needs a sort of a connector person. That's what a guru is. And I got connected with the Sikh guru. So, it, and it's not a physical guru, it's a um, intuitive guru, internal guru. And you don't have to bow down anywhere, you don't have to do any ritual. It's with you all the time, wherever you, if you go, where, if you call for help, the help is there, someone is listening. Maybe it's faith, but it works for me. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, I just, I, I, I thank you for all of that. And I want to just speak to listeners in that there are so um, many similar stories or tales that as the innocence and naivety kind of wore off and then the 80s began, some people kind of like got more and more deep into their Sikhi faith. And it was Kirtan. And a lot of the young people that went to India, same thing. It was like, as the years went on and there ended up becoming more and more disjointed kind of hierarchical money hungry things happening, more and more people were, were latching on to the Sikhi and, and directly, right? So a better bana better pronunciation, like instead of all the, the appropriated ways that we were stealing culture and making it very white, there was a gravitation to by some people that perfected that relationship and made it more um, devotional and respectful. But that came many, many, it came several generations later. And I am prefacing it because one of the challenges of being in a cult is that when things get foggy, these are like literally frozen trauma moments. If you listen to a lot of the first generation stories, there are whole segments of their lives that are just foggy haze. And all they remember is kind of like, well, I got really into Kirtan at this time, or I got really into whatever it was. And I'm pointing this out because the body and our soul knows truth. Right. And it, so it generally is going to go to the area where it can find some life source. And it makes sense <laughs> that Kirtan and the, the essence of like Guru Nanak's teachings and kind of like where the Sikh faith spawned from and the warrior heart led householder energy of, you know, going against colonialism and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there was all these things around like uniting the Muslim and Hindus. So, so we got the mythological powers of, of Sikhi without the cultural context of Punjabi culture and all of the impact 
that went with it. And there was then the added manipulative games that in the early 70s was happening with YB and the political moves that were happening that whole time during those first trips to India and him sending factions of people to play Kirtan in India. These were big political moves and people like Gigi may have been pawns in a part of these moves. And yet for them, they didn't see themselves as the pawn. They just were devotional and became more (laughs) and more gravitational towards the music or towards the faith so that they didn't see what was happening in some way. We were the lucky ones, I think. (laughs) At least we don't walk away from this empty-handed, you know. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I bring it back to just the brilliance of our coping capacity, you know, that we all yeah. find a way to cope and, and each of us do it differently. Some of us found that in the yoga and other people found that as a yeah. teacher and some people found it in the kirtan and other people found it in whatever, but either way, seva. It, exactly, seva, seva. It, it, as we really look at it for what it is, we can see it as trauma response. But we cope because that's what we do. We're masterful organisms that finds ways. You know what's interesting in uh, this time, Keaton has been my thing for 50 years. It's been my crutch. But all of a sudden in this last year, it doesn't interest me anymore. I surprised myself so much because that was (laughs) the great love of my life. It's like, where'd it go? I mean, it's all there. I have all these playlists and, you know, but I don't feel like listening to it anymore. I almost prefer sitting quietly <laughs> or watching something on Netflix. <laughs> for, for God's sakes, watching oh, what TV. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will admit a guilty pleasure. I don't know why I went from loving Keaton to loving Breaking Bad. Ooh, I love it. Oh, my God. Whoa, You're turning me I on. Honoring, I think I'm honoring my dark side. <laughs> <laughs> and I am so proud of your dark side. I just want to fan your dark side's flame over here. You I went, I'm going to say that. Can I say my favorite frame is I went from listening to Kirtan to binge watching Breaking yeah. Bad. Thank you. <laughs> and if you can see the smile on Gigi's face right now, it is so priceless. And for those of you that know Breaking Bad, that's an awesome comparison. That's horrible. And I, I, look at, I look at Walter at the end and I'm going, my God, how did he morph into such a horrible being? I didn't, <laughs> this is the second time watching it. I didn't even notice that the first time. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know the details, so I'm not the one to bounce this off, but I just want to say what a great comparison that was. And, and also it really, once again, it really is a reflection. You know, I see you it as um, such a powerful, example of what it means to build our capacity to really face the trauma we hold. Like throughout this conversation, you recognize there's parts that were frozen. You recognize that, wow, all these years, my love affair that has sustained me is is Kirtan. And I got to a point this year, it's not serving me. The capacity to listen to that and and just change doesn't mean you won't ever like it again. It just means right now, right? And that is high level. It's high (laughs) level trauma awareness and trauma healing. And, you know, for all listeners, like we all have to have our personal that 
that I can't do this. And it doesn't mean you can't do that forever, but it may be what you need to explore for a while. And that's brilliant. I know I had to do that. I had to stop taking cold showers and train myself to take a hot bath because my system depended on a cold shower. I loved it. It had been so built in to my unconscious trauma response that it actually worked for me. I liked it. Now it doesn't mean I don't still like it today, but my system needs different things at different times. And so our ability to listen to our body and when, when we've been in a cult or we were born into one, no matter whether you call it that or not, any high demand group, we give up agency or we're born without any agency. So to actually yeah. feel what we need and want, we're, we don't have any skill set or muscle development in that because we've given our attention out and we've asked permission and guidance for the next best thing, even if that's from a book of faith, right? Yes. So well done. Well done, Gigi. That's what I say. Thank you. We're going to move towards your song, but before we do, um, is there anything more you want to say to listeners or share about your own story that we haven't covered? No, I think you had the outline. So we're pretty good. Uh, there is one more thing, which I I uh, shared um, in Waco. I I don't know if it's bypassing or not, but um, uh, whatever the universe provides, um, I also got to meet someone who is the polar opposite of budget in every way. He was absolutely true, and for ten years he took me under his wing and helped me uh, survive. And heal, and he was like the father I never had. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I got the grand prize there. <laughs> you know. Well, you and got a I, taste of what what loving, unconditional kindness and care really is, as opposed to extractive, yeah. extractive. And, and interesting, um, after ten years, to show, uh, I'm saying, to show that he was genuine. He cut me loose and he says, I can't do any more. I'm old. He says, no, you have to trust Guru. And I look at, I was really depressed after that. I didn't want to. What year was that? What year was that? Uh, Around 1995. And you know, I was really, really depressed for a few years. I survived that. And then I realized that what he did was like a mother bird whose uh, chicks have, have grown and they've been fed and it's time to fly on their own. And he's saying, okay, go. I've done my job. You'll be fine. <laughs> so that's Beautiful. what it is now. Yeah. I have to, I mean, I have to give gratitude worth really do. I don't think I would have lived this long if I hadn't met him. And I call that a divine intervention. <laughs> and is this a Guru Sikh that you had met after you had left uh, 3HO? No, actually, he was a connector to the one. He, he, uh, he took me with him traveling all around Canada with his little Kirtan tour group. And uh, while I was in Canada, I met the followers of the guy who was the real deal. So okay. it was one thing connected to another to another. So it's kind of given me a, a lot of faith in whoever's looking out for me. <laughs> yeah, and it gives... Name. It gives me a lot of faith that um, that there are leaders and people in leadership positions that do care and it is possible to embody 
wholeness without um, extracting and violating and um, turning power into predatory ways. And so the fact that you can even speak to it and recognize some place in your life where you felt genuine care and guidance, it gives you a reference point to keep as yeah. you keep listening from within. So it's, it's really a beautiful yeah. thing to, um, to circle back around yeah. to. Thank you. He's my rock. <laughs> well, it sounds like you are your rock, but he was a reminder <laughs> of who you yeah. are. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your song. Tell us why you chose this song and intro it for us. Oh. Yeah. Long before I ever heard of any spiritual groups or, 3HO or anything, uh, I guess it was during those hippie days, this song by Bill Withers came out, uh, Lean On Me. And uh, I always used to cry when I heard that because I never got, nobody ever said that to me, you know. I never got anybody like that in my life who uh, I could lean on. So uh, there it is. That song sort of goes straight to the heart. Mm. And uh but I think in maybe in spirit, I have found someone. <laughs> but anyway, it's poignant, you know. So this version is by Seal. Is there a reason you like this one particularly? Or is that just one you sent me? No, it just came up. I think uh, I was looking for Bill Withers. And, and I remembered that Seal is uh, so wonderful. So I just picked him. All right. Well, this is Seal singing Bill uh, Withers' Lean On Me original song. And let's go ahead and listen. Uh, As a reminder, we don't listen to the whole song, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations uh, podcast playlist to be able to listen to all the songs from each of the episodes. So let's go ahead and listen in here before we wrap up. And here we go. Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that there's Always tomorrow Lean on me When you're not strong And I'll be your friend beautiful. So true. We all need someone to lean on. And sometimes we have no idea how much we've been trained to think we don't need anyone. And so to hear a song like this that bursts our heart open to realize it's perfectly normal to need help, to need care, to need touch, to need attention. It's not an ego thing. These are natural, normal, things that all of us need for human, for our basic humanity. So Gigi, I really appreciate you showing up for your own healing process and listening to your own inner self all these years and for the generous devotion that ended up creating the space that we know of as Ramdas Puri that really fostered a lot of memories for a lot of people 
and don't know that you exist. Don't know that your money is what made that land um, the epic um, gathering site that created the 50 year legacy called 3HO. <clears throat> I also wanna thank you for your willingness to tell your story because it's not easy and we have to be at a certain place in our trauma healing to even um, be ready for it. So I'm, I'm, I know there's no such thing as stability in your life. And yet I feel a level of, of stableness from you for even having the courage to be here. Well, you know, uh, one thing I've realized in these homeless years is home goes with me. Wherever I am is home, you know, and whatever I need, it's always there, right, right there with me. You know, so I'm not really worried about the external situation anymore. I'm fine. <laughs> well, we thank you and we love you. And, and I do know that a lot of listeners are going to listen to the story and want to know how they can contribute. And so I just want to speak out loud. Um, if you don't mind me being transparent that, that Gigi is not in a position to receive financially because it affects her SSI. And so if anybody listening has a brilliant way in which she's able to receive donations and not have it mess up her small forms of stability, um, I don't, uh, I open up the airwaves for you to reach out to me. Um, I also wanna speak out loud that there is counseling programs that are being paid for by the SSSC, which is the organization that's the umbrella to 3HO and Kundalini Yoga and, and all of the entities. Um, so if you're of the first generation or the second generation, there is a form that you can get by requesting it from the EPS, um, the Ethics and Professional Services. I highly recommend it at whatever level and stage of your own healing process, every one of us deserves a, a therapist, um, a somatic therapist, and it's a complete reimbursement program. Um, so obviously some people aren't in a position to even get the pay for the therapy in, to get reimbursed. <clears throat> However, I also encourage you to find a way to just get access to some therapy so that you can get start getting reimbursed from 3HO while this program is available. <clears throat> Secondly, there's a reparations program that has been announced by the SSSC, and I believe it's live now. I know there's several gen second generation um, that are actively working to find uh, safe ways to support you to come forward to share <clears throat> your um experience in 3HO, if you were born into an ashram, attended any school, solstice, children's camp, tantric children's camp, anything at all in the 50 years that this organization has been going, there are um, ways to make a claim. Every one of us can make a claim. You do not have to be abused directly by YB. Um, and those of you that were directly abused by YB, um, <clears throat> especially the women that were directly violated. There's a category for you in this reparations. And then there's another larger category for the second gen. And I'm saying this specifically because we need to get the word out and you feel free to reach out to me if you need to get in the loop of the details, but we don't want anyone left behind. Now is the reparations program. We have about two months to get uh, people registered. I will be doing an entire episode with more details on this once I have collected more information from those doing the specifics research and we have a method and process to support you. Um, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, please email me directly at gn at gurunishan.com. And 
Thank you so much for your listening support. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform and do me a favor and write a review. It really helps our ratings. Also, you can share this podcast with a friend that doesn't yet know it exists because whether or not you know it, there is a Kundalini Yoga teacher training marketing machine. And that marketing machine brings people right into becoming practicing Sikhi because it's a part of the path. And this is what we are working to kind of illuminate so that the two aren't conflated and that we really start to speak about the history of where um, real things get smushed into coercion and so that it doesn't keep happening in the new generations of teachers um, that are using very similar predatory formulas that YB has implemented throughout the last number of decades and that are still being propagated in the teachings. Thanks so much for tuning in. I so much appreciate you and know that we are alive and well and more stories coming. So reach out to me and let's get you on this podcast and get your story told as well. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you on the next episode. Gigi, thank you for being with us. I'm glad you didn't say Satnam. <laughs> no, we won't end with that. We won't even end with a sunshine song. We'll just say we're out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did I leave you? And this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. And we'll talk to you on the next episode.